This is Thrivecasters, thriving, not surviving, tackling youth issues that matter to you. Welcome back to Thrivecasters. I'm your host, Wasila, and today we're going to be talking about adverse childhood experiences in film. My guest today is Benjamin Perks, who is the Global Head of Campaigns and Advocacy at UNICEF, whose work has taken him all over the world doing some really wonderful work on issues surrounding children and education. And he joins me now from New York. Ben, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great to be with you today. So, so far here at Thrivecasters, uh, we've been talking about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and how they relate to youth violence, which is something very common coming up in conversations and in the media a lot more. So I understand that a lot of your work, Ben, involves using ACEs to make a difference to young people in a slightly different way than how we've been discussing so far. So could you tell us a little bit more about what ACEs means for your work and for yourself? Yes, yeah, so um, I work uh, in an organisation that, that, that supports um, service, basic services, health, education and um, child protection services in almost all countries in the world, but particularly the low and middle income countries, the poorer countries. Um, and what we're, what we're trying to do is address and reduce childhood adversity, violence and trauma by strengthening the way that local services deal with it. And there are two really good uh, public interventions that in recent years we've realized can really help to prevent or respond to ACEs. Mm -hmm. The first is that if if when parents have a first child, a newborn child, if they can receive support and guidance from the health system on how to build a healthy attachment Uh, and a loving relationship with the child and to be aware of the way that maybe their own trauma and their own personal history can be transmitted to the child and to work around that to build strategies to to, to prevent that from happening this can prevent the intergenerational transmission of um, of violence or neglect or other forms of adverse childhood experiences Mm -hmm. the second thing we're really interested in is uh, is what happens when a child is affected by violence neglect or dysfunctional parenting at home, how can you help that child to recover so that they can build a better future? And one of the things that we're, that we're really interested in is the way that schools and communities uh, are trauma-informed, address mental health, and that teachers can help children that may feel unloved and unsafe at home to feel that they do matter to feel that they matter on an individual basis. And this, this involves the teacher making sure that all children in the classroom are safe, seen, secure, and soothed. Um, and these are two of the major public interventions. So we're working with partners in the World Health Organization and others to, to really try to expand those services and make them global. I think in the middle of the COVID crisis, I think a lot of uh, governments and people have seen the extent to which adverse childhood experiences um, are a really massive issue for children that now have to stay at mm-hmm. home. I think this has only shone the lights on how how we need to do much more to address adverse childhood experiences. Wow. Because you mentioned trauma-informed environments. So if I were going to school tomorrow, though I haven't been to school in a long time, and I were going to school tomorrow, what would look different about my day at school than how it used to be? I think the first thing is the environment would be calm. The the teacher and the community would try to facilitate a a sense of belonging where every child um, 
felt they had a place. Um, mm-hmm. the, the teacher would invest in facilitating good peer relationships. Rather than responding to bullying, violence or misbehavior, they would try to build um, strong, strong peer relationships. But most mm-hmm. importantly of all, the teacher would communicate with the child in a way that makes that child believe that they matter on an individual level. It's really hard, the classroom of 25, 30 children, but you know, when you do speak to, when you do speak to kids that have come from high ACE backgrounds and mm-hmm. have recovered and built a career or built a, a stable family, often they will tell you that the most important thing in their life was a caring teacher who made them feel like that they were important and that they could build a better future. Right. So if as young people, you know, so trauma-informed environments are still a new thing, they haven't really got to schools yet. What can we do as young people, if anything, to start creating that environment? Like, is there a way that we can raise awareness amongst ourselves? Yeah, I think we need a social movement. I think we need to recognise that that adverse childhood experiences uh, uh, and, and trauma in childhood is a major driver of lifelong inequality, uh, as is poverty or discrimination. And so we need to have a movement of young people in particular to campaign against violence and neglect and to, and to campaign for trauma-informed schools and to support the parents. So we, because we're probably the first generation now that have the knowledge to really dramatically reduce this type of trauma in the lives of children. We could do a lot, yeah. but we don't have political will often. So it's important that um, you know, the, the, the young people use their democratic citizenship to demand better interventions, better investment on this particular area. Yeah. So from where we sit at Thrivecasters, um, so when we were first approaching ACEs, um, so we had no idea about anything that this conversation was even happening. So when I was when I was looking for people to interview and things, I came across your blog where you were talking about ACEs in films and how actually ACEs are very, very commonplace, but it's been a conversation that's been happening in academia and psychology and it hasn't been happening amongst young people. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you see aces in films? Yeah, I was struck um, that when we watched the Oscars this year, that most of, uh, most, uh, sorry, a significant minority of the films had a theme of childhood adversity in them. I think it was a quarter. You will remember the number that I wrote in the blog, but I think it was about a quarter. Mm-hmm. And it included um, the Joker, um, it included um, Judy, uh, included Rocketman. Um, yeah. the, the, there was um, so many films that had that theme. So what, what was interesting was that this is a theme that the public relates to because you don't make you make films about stories that people identify with. And to me, this is important for ACEs because everybody is affected by ACEs. There's nobody on the planet that's not affected by ACEs. If mm-hmm. a person didn't have any ACEs themselves in childhood, right, they're already in a minority, but mm-hmm. they're likely to be married to somebody that did or likely to have a boss or a colleague to uh, have a colleague who did. Mm-hmm. Or, or likely to have a neighbour that did, and those aces affect them in some way. Yeah. So, so the fact that we know this and can talk about this in film, that ordinary people now, the taboos are now breaking in society, and ordinary ordinary people 
identify with this story means that surely it's time that we also talk, took the ACES story more seriously in public policy and the way we run our societies and communities. So would that be a conversation where we have like directors putting together their own films that are specifically about ACEs and are, and are very, very aware of ACEs, as we have like lots of films about mental health now. Would ACEs be something like that or would it be something that's more subtle and just comes up more naturally? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about, you know, every single director that made a film like The, the Rocket Man, the, 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 um, the Joker, all of those directors, they didn't have a uh, conversation about ACEs before the film, I would guess. I think it's just that ACEs are a part of life. Mm -hmm. So organically and by themselves, it became a major driver of those scripts. I, I think it's not, it's not a, a community project where you want to make a film about mental health or violence or ACEs. It was just an organic, you know, market driven. This, this is the important point. Directors make films, successful directors make films that they know will be a big hit. Artists mm -hmm. create works, including films that people identify with. They know if people identify with the product, they will have much better box office sales. So it yeah. must have been when they write those stories, when they tell those stories, they're telling stories that people can identify with. So at that level in art, which is market driven and, and is, um, is responding to people's needs and the things that people feel are important in life, they're recognizing ACEs, but often our institutions, our politicians, youth forums, youth mm -hmm. organizations, um, non-governmental organizations, bodies don't. They don't talk about ACEs. They, they, they talk more about poverty, about discrimination. These are very important things, but they really struggle to talk about ACEs. Yeah, that was something that came to my mind. So when I read your blog and you were talking about Joker and things and ACEs is always situated in a conversation around poverty, but it came to mind that somebody like Batman, Batman, he, like he has ACEs, but Bruce Wayne, you know, he isn't in a war zone. He isn't in poverty. He's the richest and most famous man in Gotham. But mm. as you said, it's like everybody is involved in ACEs in one way or another and it manifests differently. And there are lots of different facets and lots of different nuances to how ACEs appears. And I think as young people, that's quite important to acknowledge that it's not just something that's located within, you know, this this push and this conversation about poverty. Um, yeah, ACEs are um, really about, um, uh, are not about us and them. They can affect anybody. So like, you know, I work in an organisation where we are looking across the, the situation of children across the world. Now, a traditional narrative will tell us that children in Syria or Yemen and Yemen in the situation of conflict and poverty and dependent on humanitarian aid and now in the midst of a COVID crisis mm -hmm. are the children who are suffering uh, most in the world, right? Yeah. But I also have to recognize that if a child lives in Hampstead Garden suburb in London or here yeah. in, uh, in Beverly Hills and they are affected by incest, terrifying incest at home in a wealthy mm -hmm. family they are equally traumatized you know i mean it, it, it's a it's a recognition that childhood trauma cuts across all societies all social classes there are linkages with you know with more aces and poverty we, we tend to i think some of the research demonstrates that kids in poverty may be more likely to have 
multi multiple aces but we still see children in very wealthy situations that are, are also having um, unspeakable violence and neglect or abuse in their lives and that will impact on them throughout their entire lives so yeah. you're right batman and joker suffered in different ways we we maybe because we're so used to talking about poverty and not used to talking about about trauma, we see Joker as coming from a much more wretched situation than Batman, but they both had um, different types of trauma. Yeah. The, other, though, the other important thing about Joker that I have to say, and I get reminded of this all the time, <laughs> is, that, is that Joker had multiple traumas and had terrible life outcomes uh, and, and went into a cycle of crime. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of people who do have adverse childhood experiences they may be more likely to have worse life outcomes, but many of them do exceptionally well and they go on to recover and, and, and heal. And I think that's a positive story that we have to take out of ACES. Absolutely. So with these films and these things that, you know, like Joker or Batman, or in my mind, I've got Harry Potter. What mm. is it that you'd say as a professional, so what is it that as young people we should be, when we're watching these films, when we're creating our own films, when we're having our conversations, what is it that we should be putting as the foundations of the conversations that we should be putting forward and telling everybody about? I think, I think three things. I think firstly that um, if, you, if you have trauma in your life, uh, it's nothing for you to be ashamed of, mm -hmm. right? In fact, it can be an incredible weapon uh, of strength, like as it is with Batman or Harry Potter, right? It can yeah. be something that can help to drive you forward. That's the first point. Mm -hmm. But the second point is you've got to learn how to manage it. And, you know, managing it is partially about being aware of it and, 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 and uh, you know, being mindful that, that sometimes things, trauma in the past may affect the way that you make decisions that you live life. And, you know, often the way to address that is professional support or, or other ways of, 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 um, of being mindful. But, but people mainly recover from ACEs, as far as we know at the moment, because it's a, it's a growing science, as far as we know mm -hmm. at the moment, from having high quality relationships. So it's really important that you reach out and build networks of relationships with people, that healthy relationships uh, with people that genuinely care about you and that you prioritize that as a, you know, as an important aspect of life. I think we've all learned through the COVID crisis that connection is one of the most valuable things we yeah. have. And, and the third thing is for people that may not themselves be affected by really high levels of ACEs, but may see other people who are, um, you know, who are, who are demonstrating behavior that, that, that means that they may be in pain, you know, and I yeah. think the, 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 the important thing is maybe not to judge them for that pain, but to, uh, to, to reach out to them and make, help them to feel like they belong, like they matter and like they're a part of your community. So that's three things. Um, if you're affected by trauma, you're not the only one. It's, it's, it's normal. It's just that we don't talk about it enough, but it's completely normal. Secondly, yeah. that, that one of the most important ways to, 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 to address trauma is to be aware of it, you know, maybe to seek uh, help, but definitely to have positive uh, relationships in your life. And thirdly, uh, as young people, look around your community and ask yourself, is anybody alone here? You know, it, mm -hmm. is there somebody that's suffering alone, connected? Because the ACEs 
what they do is they they make people more likely to be alone right they, they, yeah. there's something in psychology called attachment um theory which shows that kids that have had particularly with neglect or violence if they've had really high, heavy neglect and violence at home, they're going to really struggle to make relationships. Uh, so help those kids to integrate in your community. Don't, don't let your classroom or your youth group or your community be a place where any child is, any, any person, young person is by themselves. Yeah. So I think with all of this as well, it's like it's as young people that like you, when you're growing up anyway, you have this, this nervousness. And like, I'm, I say this, that I'm, I'm doing my master's, but I'm still nervous every day about going to meet new people because I'm at that liminal point in my life. And you sort of don't realize when you are alone or you aren't. But I think professional support in my life has been, it's kind of a privilege. So I went to a nice university that let me have good access to professional support when I needed it. But for a lot of young people, that professional support isn't there. We've got waiting lists that are a year, year and a half long with the NHS or the school doesn't have the facilities or the funding. So how do we work through our own traumas and things when we don't have the facilities, we don't have the youth clubs anymore to create the communities? How do we work through it? Again, I think it's about building relationships and and and, uh, and trying to. I mean, I I think it's a, it's not good that youth clubs and other services have been closed down. I think we now see the cost of that in the midst yeah. of this pandemic crisis. Um, but uh, but I think that young people, um, you know, can do what young people have done throughout history, which is 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 built their own communities and their own groups and their own uh their own networks uh innovate to make that happen mm-hmm. um and and when doing that be trauma informed be 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 uh be a place where, where where kids in need can recover and where people can help each other out you know i dream i dream that one day we will have a world where people can talk openly about trauma they know how to manage it and people lean in and support them when they talk about it yeah and i think that young people can create those networks to some extent themselves yeah so essentially using the you know, so creating our own trauma-informed environments amongst young people so that is calm it has the belonging that we want from our teachers that we want from the yeah. youth clubs that aren't there anymore yeah, I think this is a really important point, right? If somebody has got a mental health problem that needs specialized support, that's something different. That mm-hmm. requires a referral to a mental health professional. That's something yeah. completely different. But what we do know is that all people um, in a community are likely to do better if they are connected, mm-hmm. particularly kids uh, and young people who are affected by high ACEs. So it's, it, it, it's about simply creating communities which provide belonging, provide conversation, you know, um, show an interest in each other and make, this is a basic human need, right? So ACEs are painful and harmful because they cut off a basic human need, right? Children are born and they seek a, a deep connection with a parent to be protected, to learn how to navigate the world, and to feel loved. When that relationship is absent, they interpret it as threat. It's a biological imperative. Mm -hmm. If communities and schools are trauma-informed, 
they're trying to give back that connection to the child through another channel and to help them recover. And, you, you know, uh, people with child trauma can recover at any age. That's very interesting. So I was reading a book recently about um, sort of attachment theory in in adults and how like as you go through your life that your attachment changes and the way that you know, even if adults are hostile to you later on that also changes and i find it very interesting how you know this book didn't relate it to sort of childhood traumas it didn't relate it to anything like that so i think with more awareness even as adults or as or as young people sort of on the cusp of being adults having that awareness and having that knowledge even when we're forming our own relationships we're starting our own families and things it would be such a big help to try and understand why we behave as we do why do we function as a community as we do and as like therapy classes is about sort of looking at youth violence it's also how and why is there an increase in youth violence is there this hostility between us where we feel like we can't form communities violence is to me having worked in conflict situations, having dealt with um, issues of, 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 of criminal justice systems in different mm-hmm. countries, violence to me is, is usually an interaction between two things. It is, the, um, it is the aces and experience in childhood that make increase somebody's propensity towards violence as a young adult connected to structural changes at any given moment in society right so if we look throughout the whole of history there used to be much more violence than there is today our communities mm. are relatively safe compared to the way um they were previously absolutely there has been a shift from what i can understand in the way in some countries uh, including our country in the way that um criminal gangs function they have recruited often uh, and organized victims of uh, trauma, right? So, so gangsters recruit victims of trauma to push drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, those are the people they go after in the same way that traffickers also go after vulnerable children. So they yeah. recruit and network kids that have got um, a high degree of, um, of uh, propensity to violence, anxiety, all of that because of where they're coming from. And then they network them uh, and give them weapons often, or they carry weapons. And I think our police chief was saying recently that in London, principally, uh, every drug delivery now is done by somebody under 17. That's the change, right? That's the change. It's the fact that the criminal gangs may have changed. This is what, from what I can see, I don't believe propensity for violence has grown because I think there's always been propensity for violence. Um, Mm -hmm. It's the way that society manages that violence from a criminal justice um, perspective. But this is, this, these are things that we're still beginning to learn about. So I say that with, uh, with, with a high degree of humility and we will learn more about these issues as, they, as the science develops. Um, so that's about, so I don't believe that violence is increasing. I don't believe that propensity violence is increasing. Um, but I do feel that that the police now are responding to this in many places, like I think Berkshire, in, uh, in Wales, in yeah. uh, other, others where they're doing trauma-informed policing, where they're looking at a, seven, a 15-year-old county lines drug uh, trafficker and saying, is this a criminal or is this a victim, right? And they're, they're putting in place things that prevent kids 
from becoming um, having a life cycle of crime mm-hmm. before uh, you know before they're, they're doing preventative work to to remove those kids at risk from the clutches of the organized criminal. And I wrote another blog on this uh, called The Networking of Trauma, which yeah. you, you could read. So I think it's interesting. It's like, so you're saying that the, that you know, we haven't become any more violent, but the right. media and where we sit as young people, when we're looking at the media and you know, it's saying that there's this knife crime epidemic and things like that, like it doesn't feel like that from where we're sitting, where we're looking at it and saying, well, like, what's happening to our young people? What's, what's changing? Why is it changing? So I think you make some really interesting points there that actually, you know, just the nature of how we interact and how we, you know, our propensity to violence, it hasn't changed, but how we are being violent and the different forms of violence are the things that are changing. Yeah, I think so. And these things are more, are also more, 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 more visible, uh, I guess. I mean, I, I, I first see that there is um, um, one of America's top public intellectuals, Stephen Pinker, um, wrote a wrote a huge uh, piece of work a few years ago, in which he charted the progress of violence over many centuries and until the modern time. Mm-hmm. And it was clearly there's clearly a decline in violence because the way that the important point I make about the way that society and the state manages violence. So yeah. if you imagine just a few decades ago, or you know, we didn't have the criminal justice system that we have now. We mm-hmm. didn't have. Uh, the opportunities that we have now we didn't there, there, there were many we, we forget this because we come from a position of complacency in the modern world but there are now measures in place to prevent violence that didn't exist mm-hmm. in previous ages so the violence has has continuously uh, declined when i was a kid which is a few decades ago we lived in incredibly violent urban you know in a city uh, lives in the UK, uh, when probably more people were, invi- were involved in violence. There wasn't so much use of, of knives or guns, but more people were, in, were involved in casual violence. And I think that um, it's just that violence is often uh, obviously sensationalized. So as you work in a very international space, like are there other countries and other places that are doing things that are sort of tackling this youth violence and tackling the you know the new violence that we have. Um, yes, they they are. I mean, there are multiple countries that are trying new new ways of uh, tackling uh, these issues. But the I, I think what's changed is the nature to which the psychology of violence, the 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 the, the, the trauma informed approach, is spreading and growing. I think that's that's what's that, that's one of the things that's changed uh, and that's happening all over the world there are different ways that there, there have been over the past two or three decades different ways in which communities have addressed different forms of violence so if you look at south africa there was a huge challenge um in south africa of of healing the collective trauma from the state violence that had um, had existed in the apartheid regime. Mm-hmm. So truth and reconciliation by having an open conversation across all of the affected communities about what had gone on before, how we could collectively interpret it and how we could build a, a more a better society for the future probably stopped that country from going to going into a much greater state of violence. Yeah. 
So would you consider that to be a, um, a like a trauma-informed environment in itself in South Africa? I, I well, I mean, it can only be a trauma-informed environment when all of the services in place, when all of the uh, the, the schools and and, uh, and health systems and the social work systems, everything else, also practice practice trauma-informed approaches. So, I think it is an example of one good dimension of a process that had a good contribution. But I think that you need to have a dense network of communities and services that are also practicing trauma-informed support to have a truly trauma-informed system. So from where we sit as young people, so would that be us being informed, our parents being informed and our teachers being informed about all of these issues, you know, no matter how complex they are, and using that as our way to get through, communicate ACEs and overcome our own traumas? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what you're, uh, that, that, that's what we have, I think, the power to do. We have the first generation, you know, that have the knowledge and capability to make that a reality. The, the analogy that I would use is that, you know, several decades ago, a group of public, people believe that serious diseases like smallpox and polio and those diseases could not be stopped. Mm -hmm. right children were going to die of those diseases whatever you did there's nothing you could do to stop them right and then people started to look at delivery systems to vaccinate every child in a community yeah. against a disease and then what we learned and it's very interesting in the covid crisis was that people had a herd immunity we developed herd immunity which meant the disease could not reproduce yeah. right that's because at that time in history, we had that knowledge about public health and, and um, epidemiology. Mm -hmm. Today, we have knowledge about psychology and neuro, uh, neurobiology that enables us to see that if we could create societies where we could try to tackle trauma across communities, we could get health systems, education systems, social work systems, police systems, youth organizations, civil society, political institutions, all to become trauma-informed. And if we invest in supporting parents um, to ensure nurturing caregiving of every child, with those interventions, we could, we could reduce trauma in society, possibly the same way that we've dramatically reduced child death because of childhood disease in previous generations. So an awareness of ACEs would effectively be like a vaccination, a way that we can prevent, a way that we can have a healthier society overall. Yes, I think so, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's based on what we know at the moment. Um, we, we, we could, yes, we could, the only vaccination we have against child trauma and or ACEs and all of the, 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 the life outcome, negative life outcomes, is to be trauma-informed and to uh, promote nurturing caregiving. Um, that will be our, our only vaccine. That's, so, that's such a, you know, a, a nice final thought. Um, thank you so much for sharing with us, Ben, and, and taking your time in this crazy time to come and talk to us. To our listeners, you've been listening to Thrivecasters with me, Wasila, and my guest, Ben Perks, talking about adverse childhood experiences in film. Don't forget to follow us on social media at onpointwm and hashtag Thrivecasters. Join us next time for more conversations that matter to you.